Chapter Fifteen C of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Fifteen C. Varied Impressions of the New President, Guarding the White House. Mr. Ben Poorly Poor states that the White House, while Mr. Lincoln occupied it, was a fertile field for news, which he was always ready to give those correspondents in whom he had confidence. But the surveillance of the press, first by Secretary Seward, and then by Secretary Stanton, was as annoying as it was inefficient. Often, when Mr. Lincoln was engaged, correspondents would send in their cards bearing requests for some desired item of news or for the verification of some rumor. He would either come out and give the coveted information, or he would write it on the back of the card and send it to the owner. He wrote a legible hand, slowly and laboriously perfecting his sentences before he placed them on paper. The long epistles that he wrote to his generals he copied himself, not wishing anyone else to see them, and these copies were kept in pigeonholes for reference. Mr. Lincoln used to wear at the White House in the morning, and after dinner, a long-skirted, faded, dressing-gown, belted around his waist, and slippers. His favorite attitude when listening, and he was a good listener, was to lean forward and clasp his left knee with both hands, as if fondling it, and his face would then wear a sad and wearied look. But when the time came for him to give an opinion on what he had heard, or to tell a story which something reminded him of, his face would lighten up with its homely, rugged smile and he would run his fingers through his bristly black hair, which would stand out in every direction like that of an electric experiment doll. John G. Nicolay, afterward Lincoln's private secretary, says, The people beheld in the new president a man six feet four inches in height, a stature which of itself would be hailed in any assemblage as one of the outward signs of leadership. Joined to this was a spare but muscular frame, and large, strongly marked features corresponding to his unusual stature. Quiet in demeanor, but erect in bearing, his face even in repose was not unattractive, and when lit up by his open, genial smile, or illuminated in the utterance of a strong or stirring thought, his countenance was positively handsome, his voice pitched in rather a high key, but of great clearness and penetration, made his public remarks audible to a wide circle of listeners. Henry Champion Deming says of Lincoln's appearance at this time, Conceive a tall and giant figure, more than six feet in height, not only unencumbered with superfluous flesh, but reduced to the minimum working standard of cord and sinew and muscle, strong and indurated by exposure and toil, with legs and arms long and attenuated, but not disproportionately to the long and attenuated trunk, in posture and carriage not ungraceful, but with the grace of unstudied and careless ease, rather than of cultivated airs and high-bred pretensions. His dress is uniformly of black throughout, and would attract but little attention in a well-dressed circle if it hung less loosely upon him, and if the ample white shirt-collar were not turned over his cravat in western style. The face that surmounts this figure is half Roman and half Indian, bronzed by climate, furrowed by life-struggles, seamed with humour, the head is massive, and covered with dark, thick, and unmanageable hair. The brow is wide and well-developed, the nose large and fleshy, the lips full, 
cheeks thin and drawn down in strong corded lines which but for the wiry whiskers would disclose the machinery which moves the broad jaw the eyes are dark gray sunk in deep sockets but bright soft and beautiful in expression sometimes lost and half abstracted as if their glance was reversed and turned inward or as if the soul which lighted them was far away the teeth are white and regular and it is only when a smile radiant captivating and winning as was ever given to mortal transfigures the plain countenance that you begin to realize that it is not impossible for artists to admire and women to love it mr john bigelow who was appointed consul to paris in eighteen sixty one and was afterwards minister to france describes in his retrospections of an active life his first visit to lincoln and the impressions gained by him at that early period in lincoln's official career the day following my arrival in washington preston king senator from new york invited me to go with him to be presented to president lincoln an invitation which of course i embraced with alacrity for as yet i had not met him and knew him only by his famous senatorial campaign against douglas in illinois and the masterly address which he delivered at the cooper institute shortly before his nomination in new york the new president received us in his private room at an early hour of the morning another gentleman was with him at the time a member of the senate i believe we were with him from a half to three-quarters of an hour the conversation in which i took little or no part turned upon the operations in the field i observed no sign of weakness in anything the president said neither did i hear anything that particularly impressed me which under the circumstances was not surprising what did impress me however was what i can only describe as a certain lack of sovereignty he seemed to me nor was it in the least strange that he did like a man utterly unconscious of the space which the president of the united states occupied that day in the history of the human race and of the vast power for the exercise of which he had become personally responsible this impression was strengthened by mr lincoln's modest habit of disclaiming knowledge of affairs and familiarity with duties and frequent avowals of ignorance which even where it exists it is as well for a captain as far as possible to conceal from the public the authority of an executive officer largely consists in what his constituents think it is up to that time mr lincoln had had few opportunities of showing the nation the qualities which won all hearts and made him one of the most conspicuous and enduring historic characters of the century some uncommonly vivid first impressions of lincoln are given in the journals of ralph waldo emerson who early in february of eighteen sixty two made a visit to washington for the purpose of delivering a lecture before the smithsonian institution a lecture which lincoln is said to have attended a day or two afterwards emerson was taken by senator sumner of massachusetts to call at the white house the president impressed me says emerson more favorably than i had hoped a frank sincere well-meaning man with a lawyer's habit of mind good clear statement of his facts correct enough not vulgar as described but with a sort of boyish cheerfulness or that kind of sincerity and jolly good meaning that our class meetings on commencement days show in telling our old stories over when he has made his remark he looks up at you with great satisfaction and shows all his white teeth and laughs when i was introduced to him he said oh mr emerson 
I once heard you say in a lecture that a Kentuckian seems to say by his air and manners, Here am I. If you don't like me, the worse for you. The point of this, of course, is that Lincoln was himself a Kentuckian. A day or two later Emerson again called on the President, this time in the company of Secretary Seward. It being Sunday evening, Seward asked the President if he had been to church, to which the latter answered that he had not, that he had been reading, for the first time, Senator Sumner's speech in the Senate on the Trent Affair. This was followed by some general conversation on the Trent Affair, in which the President expressed his gratification at the friendly attitude taken in the matter by France and Spain. Private Secretary Hay thus writes of Lincoln's character and disposition, All agree that the most marked characteristic of Mr. Lincoln's manners was his simplicity and artlessness. This immediately impressed itself upon the observation of those who met him for the first time, and each successive interview deepened the impression. People seemed delighted to find in the ruler of the nation freedom from pomposity and affectation, mingled with a certain simple dignity which never forsook him. Though oppressed with the weight of responsibility resting upon him as President of the United States, he shrank from assuming any of the honors or even the titles of the position. After years of intimate acquaintance with Mr. Lincoln, the writer cannot now recall a single instance in which he spoke of himself as President, or used that title for himself except when acting in an official capacity. He always spoke of his position and office vaguely as this place, here, or other modest phrase. Once speaking of the room in the Capitol used by the Presidents of the United States during the close of a session of Congress, he said, "'That room, you know, they call—dropping his voice and hesitating—the President's room.' To an intimate friend, who addressed him always by his own proper title, he said, "'Now call me Lincoln, and I'll promise not to tell of the breach of etiquette, if you won't, and I shall have a resting spell from Mr. President.' With all his simplicity and unacquaintance with courtly manners, his native dignity never forsook him in the presence of critical, polished strangers but mixed with his angularities and bonhomie was something which spoke the fine fibre of the man, and while his sovereign disregard of courtly conventionalities was somewhat ludicrous, his native sweetness and straightforwardness of manner served to disarm criticism and impress the visitor that he was before a man pure, self-poised, collected, and strong in unconscious strength. Of him an accomplished foreigner, whose knowledge of the courts was more perfect than that of the English language, said, "'He seems to me one grand gentilhomme, in disguise.'" Mr. Hay adds that Lincoln's simplicity of manner was marked in his total lack of consideration of what was due his exalted station. He had an almost morbid dread of what he called a scene, that is, a demonstration of applause, such as always greeted his appearance in public. The first sign of a cheer sobered him. He appeared sad and oppressed, suspended conversation, and looked out into vacancy, and when it was over resumed the conversation just where it was interrupted, with an obvious feeling of relief, speaking of an early acquaintance who was an applicant for an office which he thought him hardly qualified to fill. The President said, "'Well, now, I never thought M. had any more than average ability when we were young men together. Really I did not. But, then, 
I suppose he thought just the same about me. He had reason to. And here I am." General Carl Schurz says, in the White House, as in his simple home in Springfield, Mr. Lincoln was the same plain, unaffected, unpretentious citizen. He won the admiration and affection of even the most punctilious of the foreign diplomats by the tenderness of his nature and the touching simplicity of his demeanor. He was, in mind and heart, the very highest type of development in a plain man. He was a born leader of men, and the qualities that made him a leader were of the plain common-sense type. Lincoln had one great advantage over all the chief statesmen of his day. He had a thorough knowledge of the plain people. He knew their habits, their modes of thought, their unfailing sense of justice and right. He relied upon the popular feeling, in great measure, for his guidance. Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe said of the qualities which Lincoln exhibited in the White House, Lincoln is a strong man, but his strength is of a peculiar kind. It is not aggressive so much as passive and among passive things it is like the strength not so much of a stone buttress as of a wire cable. It is strength swaying to every influence, yielding on this side and on that, to popular needs, yet tenaciously and inflexibly bound to carry its great end, slow and careful in coming to resolutions, willing to talk with every person who has anything to show on any side of a disputed subject long in weighing and pondering, attached to constitutional limits and time-honored landmarks, Lincoln certainly was the safest leader a nation could have at a time when the habeas corpus must be suspended and all the constitutional and minor rights of citizens be thrown into the hands of their military leader. A reckless, bold, theorizing, dashing man of genius might have wrecked our Constitution and ended us in a splendid military despotism. The fear lest the virulent enemies of the administration should attempt to assassinate Lincoln was so widespread that military measures were enforced to protect him from secret assault. General Charles P. Stone, to whom the duty was entrusted of establishing the necessary precautions, has furnished a brief report on the subject. From the first, says General Stone, I took under the orders of the General-in-Chief special care in guarding the executive mansion, without, however, doing it so ostentatiously as to attract public attention. It was not considered advisable that it should appear that the President of the United States was, for his personal safety, obliged to surround himself by armed guards. Mr. Lincoln was not consulted in the matter but Captain Todd, formerly an officer of the regular army, who was, I believe, the brother-in-law of Mr. Lincoln, was then residing in the presidential mansion, and with him I was daily and nightly in communication, in order that in case of danger one person in the President's household should know where to find the main body of the guard, to the officer commanding which Captain Todd was each night introduced. Double sentries were placed in the shrubbery all around the mansion and the main body of the guard was posted in a vacant basement room from which a staircase led to the upper floors. A person entering by the main gate and walking up to the front door of the executive mansion during the night could see no sign of a guard, but from the moment any one entered the grounds by any entrance he was under the view of at least two riflemen standing silent in the shrubbery, and any suspicious movement on his part would have caused his immediate arrest. While inside, the call of Captain Todd would have been promptly answered by armed men. The precautions were taken before Fort Sumter was fired on, as well as afterward. One night near midnight, 
continues General Stone, I entered the grounds for the purpose of inspecting the guard, and was surprised to see a bright light in the east room. As I entered the basement I heard a loud noise, as of many voices talking loudly, mingled with the ringing of arms coming from the great reception-room. On questioning the commander of the guard I learned that many gentlemen had entered the house at a late hour, but they had come in boldly. No objection had been made from within, but on the contrary Captain Todd had told them all was right. I ascended the interior staircase and entered the east room, where I found more than fifty men, among whom were Honorable Cassius M. Clay and General Lane. All were armed with muskets, which they were generally examining, and it was the ringing of many rammers in the musket-barrels which had caused the noise I had heard. Mr. Clay informed me that he and a large number of political friends, deeming it very improper that the President's person should be in such times unguarded, had formed a voluntary guard which would remain there every night and see to it that Mr. Lincoln was well protected. I applauded the good spirit exhibited, but did not, however, cease the posting of the outside guards, nor the nightly inspections myself as before, until the time came when others than myself became responsible for the safety of the President. It is stated that Lincoln had an almost morbid dislike to an escort or guard, and daily exposed himself to the deadly aim of an assassin. To the remonstrances of friends who feared his constant exposure to danger, he had but one answer. If they kill me, the next man will be just as bad for them. And in a country like this, where our habits are simple and must be, assassination is always possible, and will come if they are determined upon it. A cavalry guard was once placed at the gates of the White House for a while, and Lincoln said that he worried until he got rid of it. He once remarked to Colonel Halpine, It would never do for a president to have guards with drawn sabers at his door, as if he fancied he were, or trying to be, or were assuming to be, an emperor. While the President's family were at their summer-house near Washington, he rode into town of a morning, or out at night, attended by a mounted escort. But if he returned to town for a while after dark, he rode in, unguarded, and often alone, in his open carriage. On more than one occasion the same writer tells us he has gone through the streets of Washington at a late hour of the night with the President, without escort, or even the company of a servant, walking all the way, going and returning. Considering the many open and secret threats to take his life, it is not surprising that Lincoln had many thoughts about his coming to a sudden and violent end. He once said that he felt the force of the expression to take one's life in his hand, but that he would not like to face death suddenly. He said that he thought himself a great coward physically, and was sure that he would make a poor soldier for unless there was something inspiriting in the excitement of a battle he was sure that he would drop his gun and run at the first symptom of danger that was said sportively and he added moral cowardice is something which i think i never had end of chapter 15c recording by bill borst